May be seated. Well, good morning once again. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you. Uh, welcome, have some alums that are here uh, this weekend for, I know UMass and, and Amherst College both had home, homecoming. I think there may be some family weekends, some other places, other campuses. So welcome uh, to all of you as well. So we've been saying that we were made in and for paradise throughout this uh, series that we've called Paths to Paradise, and that that paradise was lost, and that God is bringing us on a path to that paradise. I think all of us, whether we're Christians or not, agree that the w we're longing for a better world. We're longing for a better inner world where there's no anxiety or depression or fear. We're longing for a better physical world. I mean, even as we see the leaves uh, falling off the trees, we're like, oh no, fall is, is leaving us. Like we, we, we want to, to have a, a better physical world. But more importantly, or worse than that, um, thinking about sickness and difficulty. We have a, a friend who's losing her father, who, or he's, he's actually just passed away, who had been struggling with Parkinson's for, for years. And, and finally has, has passed. We long for a better relational world where there's no more disunity or anger or awkwardness. We long for a better society here in the, in the U.S. and around the globe where governments are actually seeking human thriving instead of kickbacks and re-election bids. We long for all this stuff to get fixed. But what will fix it? Is, it? is it better mental health services? Is it better morality? Is it better government infrastructure? Is it better genetics or some sort of complex combination of all these things? I wonder if, you, if you've ever thought what we really need is a king. Have you ever thought of that? What we need to fix this world is a monarch where we centralize all the power of the world in one monarch. That's what we need. If you're an American, that's probably not what you've been thinking, right? Our whole country is, was set up over and against the tyranny of a king. But even if you're not from the U.S., you probably are not thinking that centralized power is the way to fix all of our problems. But this is indeed the path back to paradise. The path back to paradise is a king on a throne who's reigning over a kingdom. When humans sinned against God and rejected relationship with God, they rejected his authority. They rejected his kingship. And so it, it does make sense that the path back to paradise would be the, the, the kingship of God. And so we've been looking at these covenants over the last few weeks, and, and really these, these are the path back to the king and his kingdom, this covenant of commencement where an offspring is, is promised to Adam and Eve who's going to crush sin and Satan. Right? We don't know exactly what that is, but, but, but it, it, it's, it's going to end up a king. 
the covenant of preservation with Noah, where God is saying, I'm going to keep human beings around long enough to bring about a king and a, and a kingdom. The covenant of promise to Abraham, where he promises he's going to bring a, a people from Abraham and his family, and from that people is going to come that king. And then Mosaic Covenant last week, those of you that were here, this nation, right, this, this family that, that now is a nation and, and has these, this law and this piece of land where they now reside, but that nation is to become eventually a kingdom. And so this is what we're looking at today, the covenant of the kingdom. And all these other covenants were in the Old Testament are, are leading to this moment that we're reading about today of, of, of the king and his kingdom. And of course, that's King David in the Old Testament. Now, the backstory on David, he's not the first king. Saul is the first king. Saul is not a good king, he, and God eventually rejects Saul as king. David is then anointed as a boy as the next king, but no one knows about it. It's, it's definitely under the radar. David grows up a bit. He starts working for Saul, makes a name for himself when he kills a giant named Goliath, becomes a military leader. As a military leader in, in the, the armies of Israel, he outshines his boss, King Saul. King Saul's not very happy about that. And so King Saul, in his jealousy, rejects David, and an all-out civil war develops between David and his men and Saul and his men. But not only a civil war, a holy war. Because each side believes that their king is the king that has been anointed by God to be king. It's a bloody mess, and eventually Saul and his oldest son Jonathan are killed in battle. And then finally, the only real rival to uh, David's throne, a guy named, a, guy, a, a son named Ishbosheth, if you want to you know, put that down for future names for your children, Ishbosheth would be a great name. But he dies, and then Saul's general, Abner, decides we're toast and goes to David and says, I want to make you king. And so, check. First thing needs to happen here is David becomes king, and that's what happens. Now David needs a place to rule. So he wants to rule from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's very strategic. Trade routes go through there. Uh, it's also a great place to rule over the north and the south of Canaan, the promised land. Problem is, it is held by a group named the Jebusites. And so the Jebusites are so confident that they can defend Jerusalem that they say to David when they see him trying to advance against the city that they can hold him off with people who are blind and lame. It's kind of a taunting, trash talking in the ancient world. And... What does David do? He takes the city. He takes the city. Even though it's fortified and it's on a mountain, David, with the help of God, takes the city. So now king, David is king and he has a place to rule from, Jerusalem. Now David needs to relocate worship, the center of worship, to Jerusalem. And so the, the place where people understand the, the center of worship in the Old Testament is, is the tabernacle. It's kind of this traveling temple. 
And so D- David brings that tabernacle to Jerusalem. And then for the big finish, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, which is this golden box that is a physical representation of the presence of God. And so he, he brings this uh, Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and this is the way he does it. This is from 2 Samuel 6, verse 12 on the screen behind me. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. It's a massive celebration. And it's David's way of of, of declaring that his kingship is a mediatorial reign, that it is under the ultimate reign of God, that God is the ultimate king, and that David reigns in his name. And David's not sad about this. He's not like, oh, bummer, like I can't be like the ultimate king, like the Pharaoh, like he, th- he says he's a god. I, I, have to, I have to be a king under the, the rule of God. He's, he's happy about it. He's worshiping. He's sacrificing, right? He's sacrificing these animals. And he's, this, was, this was for his sin and for the sin of the people, but also as an act of surrender to the ultimate king, that is God. He strips down to his underwear, He's so excited. He's, he's not wearing his kingly robes. He, he's, he's not wearing his crown. He, 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 he's showing them, hey, I'm just like one of you. I'm a sinner too under this great king, offering sacrifices and praising as the ark is brought in to Jerusalem. This looks like paradise. Maybe we're there. I mean, this is one of those moments in, in, in the Old Testament where we're like, we're finally there. We've made it to paradise. Now, once he gets the Ark of the Covenant there and the tabernacle goes home, David starts thinking and thinking about how he has a really amazing palace and how God is still in the tabernacle. He's he's still residing in this tent. And so 2 Samuel 7, you just heard this read, says the king lived in his house and, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You probably do want to grab that Bible again and take a look at it. Second, Second Samuel 7. I, some of these are on the, the screen, but a lot of it is not. So, there's no more war within the nation. Civil war is over. There's no more war from surrounding enemies. And so he didn't have to worry about war within or war without, so he's ready for a building project. And it's not better roads, it's not libraries, it's not schools, it's a temple. He wants to build a temple. And he's concerned that that when people look at where God is worshipped, which is this tent, and then they look at where he resides in this beautiful palace, that they're going to start to think he's a bigger deal than God. And so again, we see, see David's heart, like, like he is, is so Godward, God-focused, God-centered in a way that he is thinking about 
this kingdom, and he goes to Nathan the prophet. Again, what a great move, David. Like, you're not just making this decision by yourself. You're going to the prophet, and you're asking the prophet, what should I do? And, and Nathan the prophet is like, do it. Man, God's with you. I mean, look at all that he's done. Like, go for it. And then Nathan goes home. And it says um, in verse 4 of 2 Samuel 7, But this same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've brought up the people of uh, I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Nathan, the prophet, gets home. God speaks to Nathan and says, Actually, go back tomorrow, tell, tell, tell David, I don't want him to build me a temple. Right? I don't want you to build me a temple. He says, in all places, in verse 7, where I have moved with all the people of Israel. He's saying, I haven't made my people come to a geographical location to get to me. I went to them. That is radically different than any kind of ancient world religion. Every other ancient world religion is you got to go to the special holy place. Talk to the special holy people to get access to God. God's saying, no, I went to you. I followed you. I, I, I initiated with you. When his people were in Egypt in slavery, God was there. He wasn't hanging out in, in some special holy place where they had to go make a pilgrimage to it. He, he went to them in their slavery. When they came out of the, uh, of Egypt and were there at Sinai, and he showed up. He, he, he made a covenant with them. We, we, we heard about that last week. When they were stubborn and they rejected God's invitation to go into the promised land, where was God? He was there. When they went through the, the disciplinary procedure of having to wander around in the desert for 40 years, where was God? He was there, feeding them manna from heaven giving them food to eat, protecting them from their enemies, right there in the desert wilderness with them. When it was time to go into the promised land and to, to conquest that land, where was God? He was there. He was there assisting them, leading them, protecting them. In the time of Judges, some of you were, were around when I preached through Judges. It was the most depressing sermon series of all time, right? Like, like, they were falling into idolatry, and, and, and then God would send a judge, right? And then they would do it again, and then God would send a judge. And, and where, where was God in the midst of all that craziness? God was there. He was there. He never left them. He was there 
in the time of the judges. And then through the whole crazy King Saul time, right? And if you've read any of that, you know, Saul was crazy. Where was God? He was there. He was there in the midst of all of the chaos of Saul's kingdom. And now in the inauguration of David as the good king, God is there. He's been with them the whole way. He started the relationship with them, and he sustained the relationship with them. He started the relationship with them, and he sustained the relationship with him. No matter what, no matter how good it was, no matter how bad it was, no matter how much they followed the rules, how much they didn't follow the rules, God was there. He started the relationship He sustained the relationship. If you're a Christian, this is your story too. If you're a Christian, this is your story too. God started a relationship with you, and he is sustaining that relationship with you. Have you ever blown it, Christian? Have you ever just blown it? Of course you have. Have have you sinned against God and sinned against others? Of course you have. Yes, you have. And where did God go in that time? He was there. He was there. Have you done right things? Have you loved people well? Have have you borne good fruit out of your life? Yes. And God was there too. That wasn't wasn't just you and your strength and your know-how. That was God. He was present, both in the good and the bad. And will you blow it? Christian, will you? Will you sin against God, sin against others? You will. You will. And where will God go in that time? Nowhere. He'll be with you. He'll be with you. And will you bear good fruit? Will you love others well? Will you bring great glory to God in and through your life? Yes, you will. And God will be there too. He will be there too. He started his relationship with you. He sustains his relationship with you. His presence is is unshakable. And he reminds David that that's true of David personally. Like it's true of Israel as a people, but it's true of David, right? He says, uh, part, part of verse eight, thus says the Lord of hosts, and he's saying to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. You see what he's saying? David, I came after you. You were out there in the pasture watching sheep. You were like a kid. You were a punk. (laughs) I mean, your, your, your dad left you out in the pasture while all the other older brothers were showing up for the king-making ceremony, if you've ever read that story. All the older brothers go to meet Samuel the prophet because it's going to be a, somebody's going to be made king. And Samuel goes through all of, the, of, of the, the, the brothers, and God's like, nope, 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 nope. There must be one more. Is there one more? Yeah, he's out in the pasture. He's watching the sheep. It's him. Bring him up. And it's David. God's like, I see you, David. Like, I went after you. I brought you out of the pasture. And through all of the, the, the battles and the struggles and the challenges that he's been through, God has been 
with him. So two common themes that have come up again and again in these covenants, which I think we need to hear this over and over and over again, is that God is the one who initiates the covenant. He initiates the covenant, and the covenant results in relationship with God. That's like covenant 101 right there. He initiates, right? He initiates the covenant, and the covenant results in ongoing relationship with God. He starts the relationship. He secures the relationship. Sometimes we sing this song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I love that song. For that very reason, that he, he started this relationship, and he is going to sustain it. He will hold me. He will hold me fast. Now, God is seeking to accomplish something through David's life. He, he's not done yet. Okay? This isn't exactly the, the, the paradise destination. If, you know, spoiler alert here. And so what God does is he turns this house language around and starts talking about the house that God wants to build instead of David building a house. 1 Samuel 7 starting with the back half of 11. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are filled, fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, right? He's like, okay, you wanted to build me a house. David, I don't want you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about his dynasty. He's, he's talking about his kingly line. I'm going to build a kingly line that's going to come from you, David. And the next king will be Solomon, and Solomon will build the temple, okay? And, and, and God wants that. But more importantly than temple building is this house building of the house of David. Sometimes you read that uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, the house of David. That's what that's talking about. It's talking about his dynasty, the kingly line that comes from David. And he lets him know that this future king that's going to come from David is going to be to God like a son is to a father. That's, that's pretty crazy. He's like, this, this future offspring who's going to be king is going to be my son and I will be his father. And that through this king who will be my son, I will establish a kingdom that is a forever kingdom. This kingdom will have no end. He, he, he says it over and over and over. Verse 13, I just read this. He will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Like, what, God, we got it. He's saying it over and over and over, letting David know. No, I, 
I have something in the future that is even greater than this great moment that David is experiencing as king. There is a future king that's going to come from you, will be my son, and will establish the kingdom forever. And why is he doing it? He's doing it out of love. Did you see that? Verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Steadfast love. This word translated steadfast love is the the Hebrew word hesed. And it is a special word for the unconditional, one-way, covenant love that God has for Israel. And he says, the reason I'm going to bring a a, a son, a a king from your line that's going to be my son, who's going to establish this forever kingdom, is because of my love. Because of my love. I love you, David. I love your people, David. And I'm going to do this motivated by love. So hear this again. God starts and sustains this relationship with David and God's people motivated by love. And it's not a a 50-50 kind of love. It's not God saying, I'm going to love you 50% and then you love me 50% and as long as we do that, then we're good. Sometimes people talk about that like marriage, when they're talking about marriage. They say it's a 50-50 thing. No, it's a 100-100 thing. It's a 100-100. It's 100%, 100%. And so when there's days when maybe the wife is loving at 42%, the husband still loves at 100%. When there's a day when the husband is loving at 42%, the wife's still committed to loving 100%. And when you have a healthy marriage like that, it brings things back into health. Because you feel like a real jerk. When your wife is loving you 100% and you're like at 42 and you're like, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And you bump back up to 100%. The thing with God is, is he never goes below 100%. He's 100%. Now, I've noticed on social media and some of my texts with people that are younger than me that they often say 100%, right? I'm here to tell you, God is 100%. He's all in. He's he's 100%. He's never even 99.5%. He's always 100%. That's what he's saying to David. I started this relationship. I sustained this relationship. And I do so out of love. And it is unshakable. Nothing is going to shake it. God is 100%. This This is our deepest need this is what we need, right? We, we need this at the very core of our being, that someone loves me 100%. Because most of the world is not loving us that way. Much of our experiences have told us that somehow love is transactional. For some of us, it, it, that message came from our parents. And our parents said to us, they didn't, maybe, maybe they didn't say this, but the only time they gave us positive attention was when we did something right. We made a good grade. We had success in, 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 in sports or whatever the thing was that the parents valued the most. And when, they, when you did that well, then they said words of encouragement. They gave you a hug. They gave you a gift. They, they were saying, maybe not with their words, but the way they, they treated you, I'm not 100%. <laughs> 
I love you when you do something right. Or, or, or sometimes we get this from friendships. When our friend stays in the game with us as long as we're adding value to their life, we're giving them cool points, or we have some things that they want until we don't add value to their life anymore, until we become really needy, <laughs> until we really blow it. And then friends are saying, no, I, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Right? They weren't 100%. Or sometimes in romantic relationships, where, where as long as, as we're pleasing that person, as, as long as we maybe look a certain way or we behave in certain ways, but as, as soon as we no longer fulfill whatever those expectations are, oftentimes the relationship goes. They are not 100%. And again, much of the, quote, love that we experience in the world, it is it's just this transactional kind of love. And what God is saying here is that is not my love. My love is 100 now, inside that love is a call to holy living. Don't, don't get me wrong. We learned about that in the giving of the law last week. And that, too, is love. It is loving for God to call us to holy living. It is loving for Him to discipline us whenever we go outside of His truth. That is the loving thing to do. He is being 100% in that moment when He's disciplining us, when He's calling us to a holy life. And so God is revealing to David that out of love, God the Father and His Son, who will be in the line of David, will usher in a kingdom that is a forever kingdom. This is the paradise that we're all longing for. This is the paradise that, that, that Adam and Eve were promised in the covenant of commencement. This is the paradise that, that, that Abraham was promised. And this is the paradise that even, even what is revealed in, in, in Moses and through Moses and him in the covenant with Moses. And, and he, he makes it clear that this is not going to be the very next king, okay? Uh, there, there is a mention of sin here, right? Verse 14, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So sin is, is still lurking there, and, we, and, and, and even in David, right? So 2 Samuel 8 through 10, the, those chapters, you think David can do no wrong. Like, it, you, you start thinking, we made it. We are in paradise. Like, this guy is the king of all kings. But then in 2 Samuel 11, we read a devastating story about David. David, who is already a polygamist, sees a woman that he would like to have sex with, and he commits adultery with her against one of his own mighty men, Uriah. The woman, Bathsheba, that he commits adultery with gets pregnant by David. David decides he's going to set up uh, an assassination of Uriah on the battlefield, and he does that. David makes it very clear he is not the king <laughs> of kings. And, and then not too long after that, we see a, a, a rape of David's daughter by her half-brother, who is also in the line of David. We, we then see uh, a rebellion of uh, the full brother of that sister who's raped. Uh, 
His name's Absalom. He rebels against David. I mean, the family is an absolute wreck. It's obvious as we're reading through this throughout 2 Samuel that it is not paradise. Eventually, David's son Solomon takes the throne. He indulges in every kind of earthly pleasure. He has many wives and concubines. Many of those wives and concubines are from outside of Israel, and they bring idol worship into the palace. And Solomon leads Israel to worship other gods. The book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles go through all of this. And again, I don't know if, if they're the most depressing reading in the Bible or Judges is. It's a, it's a toss-up, really. But it's a story of, of David's dynasty. And so David's, David and, and David's dynasty is this shadow. It's a type that is pointing forward to a true and better king. And that true and better king will rule a kingdom and will be the, the son of God the Father and will usher in a kingdom where God's people are given peace and that peace will be forever and ever and ever. And of course, that king is Jesus. God the Father brings about in the line of David a, a, a king that is to him a son, the son. Capital S, son. And this is how he brings in the kingdom of God. The very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, is a genealogy of, of Jesus, or the introduction to a genealogy. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see Matthew connecting Jesus to this ongoing storyline that we see in the Old Testament. God's promises to Abraham, God's promises to David. But he's not just a son. He, he's, he's not just a, a really amazing human being. He's God. And you see Jesus arguing this with the religious leaders of his day. And they're having some conversations about the Messiah. And, and so it says in, in Matthew 20, verse 41, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. All right, so everybody gets that. Like the Messiah's coming, this great king that's going to usher us into this great kingdom of peace and, and, and abundant life. And then he says to them, how is it that David in the spirit calls him, as in his future offspring, Lord? And then he quotes a verse from Psalm 110. This is like the most quoted Old Testament in the New Testament is Psalm 110. And he says, to the Lord, the, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then, this is Jesus' comments, David calls him Lord, how is it he's his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus uses that Psalm 110, verse 1, to say that David, writing inspired scripture, he's in the spirit, is describing a conversation that's happening between God and this future king that's coming. And he's saying, God, my Lord, is saying to this future king that's coming, Lord, my Lord. Why, why is he talking to my Lord? 
Why is David calling his future grandson Lord? Because this future king is not just human, he's divine. Acts 2, this is the big finish of Peter's sermon in, that, in the book of Acts. And he, he's preaching Christ and he says in verse 32 of Acts 2, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. So he's talking about the resurrection. Because therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter comments, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's letting them know, this is the king we've been waiting for. This is the king who is in the line of David, and this king is God. He is God. He is the divine son of God. And this king is still building the house. He's still building a people of God. His vision for this kingdom is that it would not just be Israel, but that it would be from all the nations. And so he's inviting you into this kingdom. He's inviting you to come to this throne. I love the way this throne is described in Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I love that. Right? If I if I was to to welcome you into a throne room, right? Hey, come on in. There's a there's a king in here, right? I mean, you there, there there'd be a little little nervousness, I would think. Like how do I behave? Do I put do I turn my back to them or do I always stay front facing or is there some kind of protocol? Do I bow? Like what 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 do I do? And and indeed, there's a throne like Jesus is king. And he deserves our reverence and our submission and our worship. But he's also a savior. And so this king uses his authority to rule and reign, yes, but to also give grace to sinners. This is what we need. We need a king. This is what we need. That the, the, the inner struggles that we have, what, what do, who do we need to fix that? King Jesus. Our relational issues that we're struggling with, who can, who can fix that? King Jesus. But even more than that, th those are merely symptoms. He, he actually can fix the root, the root of sin. And he has used his kingship to save us from that sin. So if, you, if, if you've never come to Savior King Jesus in faith, and receive that forgiveness and receive that new relationship with him. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. To trust in this king. If you've already done that, that this is this is a, a reminder, right? This is a reminder that 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 we serve King Jesus. This King Jesus who saved us from our sin. And so uh, the response that's called forth from us is absolute, unconditional surrender to Jesus as king. He's not Jesus, our therapist. He's not just he's not Jesus, our friend. Jesus, I can kind of 
call him up whenever I'm in a jam. This is Jesus who's absolutely ruling over every part of our, of our life. And one day we'll show that rulership over the whole universe, right? Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is coming. And so when that day comes, it will be too late for you to receive his salvation. But today you can receive that salvation. He's offering that. I love how Matthew describes the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. Right? The, the declaration of this good news that Christ has died for sinners like you and me is declaring the coming of the kingdom, right? that sinners like you and me can be, can be forgiven, that we can be given new life so that we can live under his rule and his love. And every time we come to this table, we're reminded of that reality. Jesus is offering a, a kingly banquet. But it, it doesn't look like you would expect in a kingly banquet, right? It's bread. It's cup. There's no choice meats. There, there, there's no chocolate cake. Like, like what, what's going on here, right? But this king is also savior. He takes bread. He breaks it. Gives it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is Jesus' way of saying, I'm 100%. Before you did anything to deserve saving or salvation, or he died in your place for sin. In the same way, he takes the cup. After he blesses it, he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And so he lets us know that not only is he saving individuals, but he's also gathering them in a covenant community, in a kingdom. And so as I said earlier uh, this morning in the welcome, this is like an embassy of the kingdom of God. Not this building or this particular little plot of land, but this gathering, anywhere where the people of God gather as a local church is a little embassy for the king. And so we know that this kingdom has been bought and paid for by the death of our king. Talk about a good king who has been broken and poured out so that we can be saved from our sin and saved to living in this kingdom. And this kingdom is a forever kingdom. It is a kingdom now as we live in this embassy <laughs> together, but it's a kingdom forever. Because again, this king will return. He will fulfill all those promises he made to King David will come to fruition. And we are reminded of the way that he accomplishes that as we take this bread and take this cup. Let's pray. Lord, we do need you to be king. Any amount of trying to solve our problems in our own strength, Lord, of trying to solve the problems of relationships and systems and all, all the things, Lord, that, that frustrate us and, and that are difficult and challenging, God, 
we know that in large part, all of that is a result of sin and its effects. And we need you, our Savior King, to save us from that sin and, and, and to give us grace to live in the kingdom here and now as, as we live that out day in and day out, gathering with our brothers and sisters in this kingdom, but also being sent out on a daily basis, Lord, to bring that kingdom to the people who have not yet heard that you are a good king, a king who has saved them. And so we celebrate that today, Lord. We, uh, we come under your good kingship as we take this bread and take this cup. And we pray your blessing over it and over our time as we worship. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.